I um, actually woke up a couple times last night thinking about the message because of, for what I believe is the importance of it, and I'm not just saying that, it really is something that God has spoken, and I feel a strong sense of passion and ownership of the message of what I'm bringing, because what I, I'm going to share with you, and I'm probably going to be a little more conversational, and I'm, I'm going to share my heart, I hope you'll receive it that way, as well as just my passion for what I believe ought to be uh, taking place in the coming year. I don't know that there's any radical things I'm going to suggest. There's some things we're going to talk about over the next several weeks that come out of our direction. You might realize, I hope you figured it out, we are in the book of John right now, and we have committed ourselves to go through the first five chapters, and we're on chapter four now. Next week we'll be in chapter five, and then we'll transition. But I've been praying and have been thinking about some things for about six months now, and along with the leadership team and others, looking at, Lord, you know, where are we going? And could you affirm direction, things like that? And God just is so affirming to where things are right now. But I also recognize there's some things we need to clarify. And over the next couple of weeks, I do want to clarify several things. That uh, there are some priorities that we as a church need to attend to. We're going to talk about, matter of fact, what I... I'm going to share with you is that first priority, and that's sharing Jesus. I, I keep thinking about how uh, life is going, and I'm looking around at the challenges of life. Now, I would imagine you're like me. There's a lot of questions that are jumping out at me. What do I do about the YMCA and their decision with the transgender issue? How do I handle the new Kitsap County law that uh, now has been enacted that a lot of people don't know about that requires all businesses to open up their facilities uh, and their restrooms and all the things that they might have to transgender. Uh, just came out uh, about two weeks ago. Um, you know, how is it that we deal with the challenges of sexuality and morality that, are, are, that we're faced right now? How do we handle the, the terrorism we face? I mean, we're now... I mean, who would have ever thought that New York would have open carry? And, you know, that, that whole idea that's taking place. I mean, what does that mean and the questions that that raises? And I'm hearing lots of people talk about, you know, I'd better get my concealed weapons permit before it goes away. And, and, and those things, you know, again, are raising up questions and, and real challenges to us. Um, just in terms of our spirituality, what's happening to the church, so many questions are jumping out right now and challenges that are facing the church. Uh, things are, are coming at us in terms of, so what, what do we believe? What should we believe? Uh, what can we say? I'm, I'm having conversations every week, people asking me, how can I face this question realizing if I answer it, I might get in trouble at work. Um, someone might be offended or my boss might call me in and, you know, what can I say? What can I not say? And, and, and as, I, as we face these things, I believe that the, ch the, the church needs to wake up to some stuff. Um, I'm very passionate about what I'm about to say because it was interesting that as I've been going through these questions and as we as a team have been praying and thinking about where we're going, and again, it becomes very clear basically that evangelism, which I'm going to talk about, needs to be a number one priority. Uh, we believe that uh, God's calling us to continue to focus uh, on growing up. I've mentioned to you maturing. That's not going to stop. I believe passionately and I'm going to bring everything I can to help you and I mature in the Lord 
and that somehow a miracle happens and we all can do this together. And thirdly, that, uh, that we also see uh, a really strong community being built. Because I see the challenge to us as a church is, you know, the idea of what community is and your definition, my definition, is becoming challenging. I think we're defining community much differently than we ever have. Lots of questions. Um, I came across this, and, and this just, this really, I, I had a mixture of sadness and anger when I saw this. I, I read, uh, I read, a, I do a lot of reading. And uh, one of the, I, I like to read certain magazines. One of the ones that I read uh, regularly is uh, Christianity Today. I think it's a good magazine, uh, has some good ish, some articles in there, things like that. And the uh, December 18th issue came out and caught my attention, one of the articles, and I made a copy of it here. And, uh, of course, titles do that to you. Orthodox rabbi say Christianity is God's plan. Vatican says, stop evangelizing Jews. Now that caught me for two reasons. Number one, hearing an Orthodox rabbi say Christianity is God's plan, I, amen, <laughs> finally. But then you have the, the second part of the message and the Vatican says stop evangelizing Jews. Hmm, I wonder what that means. And then you get into the article and what you soon discover is that what has happened, and it's all happened one week apart, the Vatican, uh, and I actually made a copy of this. You can go online and get it uh, yourself. It's called the uh, Nostra uh, Etet, which is basically Latin for uh, in our time. This was a, uh, a, a paper that was written by the Vatican 50 years ago, 1965, I believe, 1965. And this is the 50th anniversary of this, and so they brought it out to re-examine it, and re they say reflect on it, and it's just amazing reading, uh, if you like reading stuff from institutions. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but basically, they were making some very uh, strong statements, and one of the statements that they were making, and I'll just, uh, again, there's a lot of information here, I'm just going to grab a bit of a summary piece here. And this was their assertion. This is from the back. And let me say this. I want to be very clear. I, uh, I respect the Catholic Church as an organization. I may not agree with their theology, but make no mistake, I am not here to belittle or make fun of the Catholic Church. I just would not do that. That's not who I am. But uh, it is, uh, you know, you've got to realize that's the, the largest organization, uh, you know, right now in terms of religious organizations on the planet. And so when they say something, I think it's noteworthy to, to look at it and see what they're saying. So here's, here's what it is, uh, just a couple sentences. From the Christian confession that there can be only one path to salvation. However, it does not in any way follow that the Jews are excluded from God's salvation because they do not believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah of Israel and the Son of God. So if you didn't get that, what they just said was, you can be a Jew and go to heaven and not believe in Jesus Christ. So you have the Catholic Church that has up to this point in time, December 18th, they made it very clear that in order to go to heaven, you need to receive Jesus Christ and the Catholic faith. And there's a lot involved with that, but it was pretty clear. They're now coming out with a statement that says, well, 
that's not necessarily true. That we would now agree that Jews could go to heaven, receive salvation, as you and I understand salvation, without receiving Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of things happening. This is an open door at a number of levels. Because if it's the Jews now, guess who's next? I mean, this is going to be coming down the line, and I can see this now moving in a more eclectic way. This is just the cracked door that's now open. And they did respond to the, what they call the apparent contradiction. Because when you read the article that, or the paper that talks about salvation, it looks like, wait a second, guys, uh, this doesn't seem to go together. On the one hand, you're saying Jesus is the only way of salvation. Now you just came out with a clear statement on December 10th, 2015, that that's not the case. So what, what goes on? And here was their answer. Very simple. The Vatican says, quote, this remains an unfathomable divine mystery. In other words, what we're saying is what we're going to live by. We don't know why it works. But it is a contradiction. But because we said it, it's okay now. Interesting, a week later, the Council of Orthodox Rabbis came out, and they wrote a letter too. (laughs) And in their letter, they reinstated that yes, in fact, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that we would affirm that as a way of faith. And that we can coexist together. The Jews can have salvation, and the Christians can have salvation, and we no longer need to evangelize one another. That ought to scare you. Because these are leaders who are basically saying this, and here's where this is going, this is my concern, that evangelism is going to go away. The sharing of any religious faith is going to become something that I believe this is the open door where you and I will be in serious trouble if we make a choice to share our faith. Because it's going to become, if you will, the the new culture and the law of the land, that whatever faith you have, we will allow that faith and recognize it as the way to salvation. So Catholics, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, I mean, it just can go on and on and on. This is a cracked door. I mean, you need to see it. This just came out. This is less than two weeks old. Obviously, it's been a discussion for a while. Um, Church, we need to be concerned. There's a lot more to this, but that's not the only thing that's going on because the church is changing radically. Uh, Another article that uh, I came across that, again, was reflecting on what... This is something we've been talking about as a staff for about eight or nine months now. We've noticed what we... And we identified this... I'd like to think we identified it first, but we identified what we call intermittent uh, believers. And what we identified them as is that we've noticed that there are a number of people who now consider uh, their commitment to church to be intermittent, which means that the average person right now 
in, in churches today, and we're thinking of our church and other evangelical churches, are there's a lot of people who come once or twice a month, and for them, that is regular attendance. So there's a new definition of what is regular attendance in the church. So, so again, think about this, because this is important. And so uh, they actually, uh, in this article, identified intermittent attendance. And this article, which was a sociological study done by a couple major universities, they did a meta-study. And so the good news to me was, we're not the only ones seeing this happen. This is happening across America. And they identified churches all across, from West Coast to East Coast. And here was the new definition. Regular attendance is defined as, I get there when I can. Now think about that, what does that mean? That means that I can come to church whenever it suits me and I'm able to make church and that is my new definition of regular. So if you have an expectation of my commitment, this is my commitment, I'll show up when it works. But it don't, don't, in other words, don't judge me that, or don't misunderstand, I'm part of this place, it's just I'm only gonna be here maybe once or twice a month. Now, you think about that, how do we then live with, because here's where this is going, Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Now let me make something clear, God has called us to commit and to attend church every week. I mean, that ought to be something of a clear discipline and practice that we all bring into our lives. Because here's the point. How else can you live life as a believer except according to God's definition of what community is? That's why one of the third things I believe is critical is that we need to help us rebuild the concept of community. You can't have a community if you only show up once a month. Not a healthy community. You can have a crowd of individuals hanging out together. And unfortunately, the church can easily become a, you know, we have this moment at 11 o'clock to maybe 12.30 where we come together as a collective group of individuals, unified together in one sense of a, of a message and music and ministry, and then we go away. This collective point is critical, but it is a gateway into the rest of the interaction that's to take place for us as a community. But what's happening is there's been a redefinition of what it means to be a part of a community. So here's the thing that I've adopted. We need to breathe the same air together every single week. You can't have community on Facebook. You can have a Facebook community, I get it. And you can communicate with people and get yourself in trouble all you want. That's your choice. But it is not God's community. It's a way to communicate. Great. But it is not community. Community takes place when we gather together and we pray together, we worship together, we listen together, we talk with each other, we pray for one another, we minister to each other, we share and bring others involved and in, in be a part of this. L listen, if this doesn't keep happening... Then here, remember the movie, God is Not Dead? Man, absolutely, God is never going to be dead. But you know what? The church will be. 
What I see happening, and here, here's where this is going. I'm going to put these two things together. Stop evangelizing, the church will die. Stop showing up, the church will die. Now we got both things happening. We have the suggestion that we no longer need to really evangelize because if we don't have to evangelize Jews, why do we have to, why, why not anybody else? I mean, are the Jews that special that, so the Catholic Church has decided that, okay, we don't have to bring the message to the Jewish uh, religion, but then pretty soon the other ones are going to jump in, and, and now the statement's going to follow, we don't have to evangelize. Number two, we don't have to go to church. So we don't go to church, we stop evangelizing, the church dies. You ought to be concerned about that. On top of everything else that we're facing. Because all these other questions that you and I are facing right now, there is an attack coming against believers. There is an attack coming seeking to kill the church. Don't be naive. I am here, and let me tell you, this is my heart, my passion, to communicate this in the strongest way, but yet the loving way to each of you to wake up and to not, not be blinded by what's happening right now. I, I am being prophetic you know, I prayed, and here's what I, I heard God speak a word, that we're to persevere and attack darkness. That we're to persevere. We're not to give up. We're to hold tight, and, and hold tight to what our values are, and, and to hold tight to God's word and his principles and precepts, and then start attacking darkness. The church has been sitting too quiet. We are too silent. And it's dangerous because of where we're going. God's calling us to assemble together. And I have with absolute certainty the understanding from God and His Word that we need to become evangelistic, which is a, a, just a simple way of saying we need to share Jesus. We need to get out there and communicate Jesus Share our story of Jesus redeeming us. Share the story of God's salvation. Get out there and invite people in so they can hear the amazing story of God's redemptive work and witness it firsthand through your lives. Can you see into that? And that's everyone's job. This is not my job. This is our job. I am here to lead you into this place that I believe God has critically calling us to and to make this our number one priority in 2016 and that is sharing Jesus. Sharing Jesus at work. Sharing Jesus in the department stores. Sharing Jesus with our family. Sharing Jesus with our friends. Communicating an absolute clear message of Jesus Christ. He is the only way of salvation. If we don't do it, who will? The Crusades will not make it. Let me tell you, Crusades are not the way to go. Events are nice. You realize most of the Crusades you're watching on television happened anywhere from three to five years ago? You turn on Christian TV, you see the big Crusade, you go, wow, look at all that. Man, it's happening out there. Well, you ought to check the date. They, they don't put the dates on there. I used to work with Christian television and radio. I know exactly what they're doing. They bring out tapes and they put them out there, and you don't realize that a lot of the stuff you're seeing isn't live. Even if it says live, it's not live. Don't you love it when it says live and then there's a disclaimer, oh, by the way, this isn't live. <laughs> but they still do a good job because here's what they do. Here's, here, here's, here's Christian TV. They'll play the tape, 
they still have workers at the station, so it says call if you want to get prayer or whatever. And you call, and there's people there to talk to you. Absolutely. There's real life people there. So in that sense, God can use those tapes, and there's real people to call. But you've got to recognize that it isn't right then and there. And listen, where it happens is in places like this, in churches like ours, all across America. This is the place that needs to take that this stuff needs to happen. He's the man of that church. And that needs to be part of our message. Our message is, listen, you need to be part of something like this. I believe God is speaking to us to persevere, to attack darkness, and he's saying to be a lampstand church. That comes out of Revelation. There's a lot there. And basically to be a lighthouse. We need to be a light because you know what? A lighthouse is by design to warn ships about the rocks that they're about to crash into. And you know what? There's a lot of people that are going to be floating on the surface with their bodies coming ashore because there was no light. And I believe God has called us to be a bright light where we are and to be that lighthouse and to guide people into safe shore. Can you say amen to that? And that's our job. So when we think about what will take for us to be successful, I've written this statement. Actually, I've revised this a bit. I wrote this about 20 years ago. And I wanted you to, I want to revisit this because the key to successfully sharing Jesus Christ, listen, is to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit expecting the results from God. Now I want you to start getting hold of that because successfully sharing Jesus Christ is not dependent upon your fancy words, your education. It's not about you saying, oh, it's about you relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Because here's a truth. You save no one. Relax. I had someone very concerned about the fact that they felt like they, and they said the words, I have to get this person saved. I said, you have to share the message to this person. I'm glad for that passion, but you are not going to save anybody. What do you mean I'm not going to save anybody? I said, you save no one. That's Jesus' job. And trust me, he does a much better job than you'll ever do. And there's a point here where we rely on the Holy Spirit, and guess what? Expect results from God. When you start living that way, it takes the pressure off. And helps us to live because, you know, Acts told us you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then you'll be my witnesses. Not, notice it doesn't say my saviors. Right? It says my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaritan, and Israel. So what does that mean, a witness? It means you're sharing what's happened in your life. What you've seen happen in other people's lives. That's what you do. So this becomes part of who we are. Now, There's this amazing story in John chapter 4 I want you to look at with me. Let me tell you, it's a simple story. John chapter 4 is about Jesus who takes a detour, not by accident but intentionally, and heads through to Samaria. And there he gets tired in his journey and wants a drink of water. And in his pursuit of getting a drink of water, an appointment takes place between he and a Samaritan woman. And at that moment, as she also was coming to get some water for her household, he was there to get a drink of water, still being human and being dehydrated. He wanted to hydrate himself. A conversation takes place that totally changes her life. 
Can you imagine a simple act of getting a drink of water changes a person's life? That's what I love about this story. It is unbelievably simple, but so full of the miraculous work of God in a person's life. And often that's how God does his best work, is in those simple moments when we have an event or, or something that we're just living life, and all of a sudden we meet the living God and he changes everything. Because that's what God is in the business of doing, changing everything. Look with me in uh, verse 3. It says that uh, Jesus uh, left Judea, returned to Galilee, and he had to go through the uh, Samaria on the way. Actually, it's verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 1 on the way. Uh, eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar uh, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired from a long walk, sat wearily by the well about noontime. So, here he is, about ready to uh, have this appointment, and we get a lot of information here. Jacob's, this is a big deal, Jacob's well. A lot of information about this. Um, a lot of what is happening right now, you have to understand the Samaritans were a rebellious people, and they had become uh, disobedient to God. And in their history, they basically made this decision to be competitive with Jerusalem, and they decided that they were going to build their own temple in competition with the temple in Jerusalem, that they, and they brought in a different way, sort of a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of Islam, a little bit of other world beliefs, and kind of put it all together and came up with a Samaritan belief system. And it was very different. And, and, and part of this had happened, too, is because God had told them and the original Samaritans don't go to this region and marry foreigners. And they went in that region and married foreigners. And so the result of all that became what we have now. So in the short of it, I just gave you a very brief history lesson of a lot of years. And that was the Samaritans. They were disobedient. They were basically deceptive in their worship. They were competitive with the things of God. And they had made a choice to not live as God had commanded them. So you have this, this uh, amazing moment where Jesus is entering right into darkness. He walks right into, if you will, to the, to the place that the Jews at the time would have considered the enemy. And I love that of Jesus. He goes where we ought to go. He goes to the places where you know, people are having it all together. Can you say a minute of that? He goes to the places where people are really struggling because what we're about to see is that He's about to bring life where there was death. Now, I want you to see something here is that, you know, we need to learn to not live by our feelings. Sharing the Lord needs to become a normative part of our life, bringing Jesus into everything of our life. So I want you to see something. A normal action of getting water becomes a moment to share Jesus. So here I have this crazy thought. We go to the store, it becomes a moment to share Jesus. We go to the bank. I'm talking to the teller. And she says, so what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, really? I've never talked to a pastor before. Well, here I am. How's it going? <laughs> well, actually, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Absolutely. And we talked. And I shared. 
And every time I see her now, we talk and we share. It's great. I, I just, I'm, I'm believing what God can do for her in her life. Yeah, I just, that's what it's about. It's that simple. I mean, I'm going to make a simple deposit in my account, and now I have this amazing conversation with someone who needed to hear a little bit about Jesus. And it, all t- it was that simple. I mean, those are the kinds of things that I believe can happen in our lives if we're open to let them happen. And that we make a decision that it becomes normal for us to share Jesus. Not exceptional, but normal. I was talking to someone, and I w- we were talking about this whole idea of, hey, you need to get out there and share Jesus. And here's what he said to me. You're right. I am praying for the move of God to bring me to a place to share Jesus. I said, what do you mean the move of God? He said, well, I just really believe that God ought to activate something in me and, and there ought to be that anointing that ought to come and I, I just pray for those moments. I said, so that means you wouldn't share Jesus unless there's a move of God? He said, well, no. I said, well, you're wrong because you don't need a move of God. You need to just get out there and share Jesus because it has nothing to do with you. He kind of looked at me and said, what are, are you? I said, Listen, stop going on your feelings. What you're really telling me is you need to feel it. You know what? There's a lot of things in life that you don't need to feel, but you're still going to do it. That's what it means to not live on your feelings. I don't always feel like reading the Word, but guess what? I'm going to read the Word. Because I will die without reading the Word. Some of us live just on feelings. And you know what? You haven't felt like reading the Word in probably a year now. And that's why you're drying up. Haven't felt like praying. There hasn't been the right moment to seek God. There isn't that moment to have this this conversation with the Lord. And so as a result, nothing is happening because you're not feeling it. That's dangerous. I I see Jesus teaching us that we don't want to live on our feelings, but we want to go and live life as he's called us to. You know, I, I just, I love the fact that athletes can declare Jesus. Why can't we? Right? Well, you love this guy here right now, right? Well, not last week, but, you know, <laughs> maybe this week he'll be, he'll be better in about an hour and a half or so. But he acknowledges God. You know, either way, he acknowledges the Lord. And I, I look at these athletes. I mean, here are just examples of blows. See, and here's something that I'm remi- I love this passage. This is one of my favorite verses. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I really am not. I have given up a lot for the sake of the gospel. I look at my life and the things that have transpired. There just isn't anything shameful in me when it comes to the gospel. I ask you, are you ashamed of the gospel? I think some of us are. That's why we don't talk. I think we are embarrassed. We are struggling. Because if we were not ashamed, there'd be a lot more people being invited. There'd be a lot more conversations taking place. I'm challenging you to look inside and ask yourself a question. I have felt moments of being ashamed because I've been in conversations where I've heard people talk and share their 
hurt and pain about the church and their injury about this pastor, that pastor, this situation, that, and whatever. And i got to remind myself, you know, it has nothing to do with Jesus. But if there's a moment where you feel a little bit like, oh no, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? Let me tell you something. That's why you rely on God. But ask yourself, are you are you ashamed or are you not? Are you willing in front of 50,000 people to declare yourself or who you are? So I see this is such an amazing... So it goes on and, and uh, we, we see now that the uh, Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. And again, Jesus turns a, just a regular, real-life situation to a teachable moment. And I love what he does. He keeps it simple, he's straightforward, and he shares what's going on. That's what God's called us to do. Keep it simple, keep it straightforward, but be direct about it. God's called us to give a powerful message and to give our testimony as to who we are and what it's about. I mean, this woman was struggling. I mean... You may not see it right here, but when you look at the evidence, what do we know about the Samaritan woman? So when you read the story, you realize Jesus will confront her and he'll say, well, you've had, you know, like five husbands. Well, she hasn't had five husbands, but she's involved with five different men. Um, she obviously is drawing water at a well. We know she didn't live anywhere around this well. Why is she drawing the water at this well? Because she's embarrassed and ashamed about her own life. So she went to a well that no one would knew her. No one would know who she was. I had a call like that from someone. Uh, someone called me and said, could I come and talk with you? I said, sure. Yeah, we, we. I said, where do you live? Montana. I said, Montana? Yeah, I want to fly in and talk to you. I said, sure, but why? And there were a couple of reasons why they wanted to come and talk to me. But one of the reasons was I want to go someplace where no one knows me. And I'm not going to run into anybody. I said, I need to warn you, I do fly a lot. I might be in Montana one of these days. <laughs> but there was a sense there of, of wanting, you know, she was embarrassed about her life. She was drawing water at noontime when this is the time you don't draw water. This is like the worst time. It's the hottest part of the day. It's the most uncomfortable part of the day. So she had walked an extra distance on the heat of the day to get water. Why? Well, because her life wasn't really doing really well. And there's a lot of people that you don't realize on the outside it might look like everything's okay, but you know what? On the inside, it might not be so okay. I, I run into people all the time who feel worthless, who feel like they have no value, and, and you don't see it on them but you, it requires a little insight, and I believe a work of the Spirit of God that gives us discernment that we can see what's going on. And that's exactly what, what happens here with Jesus. And listen, it can happen the same with us. Because I hear you thinking, well, wait, that's Jesus. But you remember what Jesus says, even greater works you'll do than me? We have been given so much of a resource that we can operate in an amazing way. Can you say amen to that? Here's the point. Don't shortchange yourself. You'd be surprised what, how God can use you. 
There's a lot of people who will receive Jesus once you hit the real issue. You know, when I received the Lord, I don't think I've shared this very often. Two things happened in my life. <clears throat> Number one was I had to get over the hump of the theology. I was born and raised in a Jewish home. And so I was raised, I, bar mitzvah, the whole thing, to be a good Jewish boy. And so I went through all of that and studied it. And so I had to get on the other side of Jesus and all that that means. And there's a lot there. The other part is I had to experience healing from woundedness. Um, when I was uh, about 16, 17, and I share the story, this is from my perspective. This is not a negative on my family, on my dad or my mom. This is just me looking back a lot of years now at what it was like as a teenager and a young adult when my dad came to me and said, son, I'm leaving your mom. I'll never forget, it's, it's even talking a lot of years later, I can still, I'm there, that 17-year-old boy who dad calls outside and sits down on the steps in Southern California. It was a hot day. It was in the summer. And my dad sat down with me. My dad and I were, were close. We had always been close. We still are. But I had no idea. I knew my mom and dad were arguing. I'd watched my dad sleep on the couch a lot. I watched a lot of things taking place. But I had no idea what was really going on until my dad sat down and said, Steve, I'm leaving. I said, Dad, what do you mean you're leaving? He says, well, I've decided to leave and I'm going to divorce your mom. And he explained, you know, we can't live with each other and, and all the things, you know, that... I had no idea what he was really talking about. I just listened, and I, I heard very little of what he said. The only thing I could say to him, the very, after he explained his, his situation and what was going on, really the first substantive words out of my mouth were, what did I do wrong? The first response I had was, it's my fault. I, 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 have I not been a good son? Is there something I could have done different? Dad, is anything I can do to help? Uh, I don't want you to leave. Of course, he reiterated and, and lovingly, and my dad loved me. I know he did. And this had nothing to do with me, but it felt like it had everything to do with me. And so I will not forget after that conversation, I can hear my dad uh, goes into the house and basically lets my mom know I'm now leaving. And I heard them fight. I heard my mom cry. And I watched my dad go into the car and drive away. And he never returned. Um, my mom came out, very tearful. My brother, you know, we were, were over eight years apart, so he was only about eight years old, came out. He was in tears. What happened? Here I am, big brother. My mom comes out. What are we going to do? And all of a sudden, in that instant, I became the man of the house. And I was so overwhelmed. It wasn't long after that that I just felt such depression I've never felt before. It really hit me. My family just blew up. I didn't understand it. I didn't know what to do. And I spent the next two years struggling. I threw myself into sports. I threw myself into, into friends, not healthy friends. I threw myself into a lot of things trying to find a way to deal with this woundedness that, that I felt for whatever reason I felt. I, 
I had no one to help me navigate through it. I just had to deal with it, live with it. You know, there was no one to talk to. My parents were just not the, they were not there. They were not talkable at that point. And obviously, uh, they're not able to help me. And I had no one else, really. My other family, they were all kind of like pulling away because in a Jewish home, you don't do that. That's like a really bad, especially back then, getting a divorce was like, well, we just want to talk about it. The first conversation I had was several years later with a pastor as I shared my heart. Because I'd been introduced to this idea that there was the Messiah who could heal your life. I want you to know Jesus came in my life and healed me. He took away the woundedness and the pain. He healed me of the sadness. And because of what Jesus did in my life, because someone at a department store, invited me to come to church at Sears Sporting Goods. I was looking at the sporting goods. I was actually working there at the time. And this person came and said, would you like to go to church? I said, I'm Jewish. I can't go to church. (laughs) Yes, you can. It'll be fun. It's a college group. Sure, why not? (laughs) And that began a journey that led to God's healing. Just a normal thing of life transformed. I want you to know you have no idea who you're talking to. You have no idea how God can use you. You have no idea what's happening with a person in front of you. And I want you to see through this story that real life, real life situations can become amazing moments and just to keep it simple and straightforward and to present the gospel message of Jesus. Can you say amen to that? Here's here's what I want you to see. Give me the next slide. Is that Jesus gave her hope. God gave me hope rather than condemnation. Are you with me on that? I want you to understand, God comes not to condemn. He could have said a whole lot of things about her. He could have said, what is your problem? Don't you know how to live life? You got all these men around you? Don't you have enough self-worth to not do this? What's going on with you? You need to straighten up and get your act together. Instead, he says, you know what? You need living water, and I have living water for you. And she says, what are you talking about? I'm here to get fresh water, but you just said I would never be thirsty again? Man, I want some of that water. Well, you can have that. I'm here to give it to you. I'm here to give you hope. That's what evangelism is, giving people hope, not condemnation, but hope for something that can be better, that God can heal, and that your life can really change. Can you say amen to that? Hasn't your life changed? Then why aren't you telling people about it? Why are they not sitting next to you? Why is it that these seats are not full with people who would hear your story of God's hope and then want to have more of that? See, that's the challenge that God calls us to. Give me the next slide. God will give you the words. Moses struggled with communication. I bet some of you would say, well, I don't talk well. That's what Moses said. You know, so the Lord asked Moses, and here's what God is going to say to you. When you say, God, I don't speak very well. I don't talk good. You know, my grammar's not so great. Well, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether a person that people speak or do not speak, hear or do not hear, see or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. (laughs) I'll be with you as you speak. 
and I will instruct you in what you say. Same thing happened with Peter. Peter, look at it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he goes on with this amazing speech. And here's the end of the speech. Here's what they said about Peter. The members of the council, Sanhedrin council, were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. How were they able to say what they were speaking on? By way of the Holy Spirit. The power of God helped them because God will give you the words. Can you say amen to that? So relax. You don't have to be extroverted. You can be introverted and do this. You can be somewhere in between. It is not dependent on your personality. Your, listen, your personality is not an excuse for you to not get out there and share Jesus. I've had people say that to me. I'm just not that type. You're wrong. We are all that type. We are all called to share in this amazing message. Give me the next slide. Here's probably the biggest problem, is if you're not living it, why should anyone believe it? I think the bigger problem is not that you don't know what to say, is that a lot of us, when it comes right down to it, we're not sure we're living it. And if you're not living it, why should anyone believe in it? Here's what I see Jesus doing. Look with me in verse 13. I, I see Jesus, he, he, he's talking and he says, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I, I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Police are the woman says, give me this water then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Well, go get your husband, Jesus told her. Well, I don't have a husband, the one replied. Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. So here's what I want you to get from that. Never give up on people. When is it that you stop talking to someone? I have an answer, when they stop breathing. When they stop breathing, then you're done. But until they stop breathing, you're not done. Don't give up on people. You and I are to not give up, even if they seem to miss it. As long as there's breath, there's hope. Ecclesiastes says, there is hope only for the living. Can you see of that? Give me the next slide. Jesus stayed right on the topic. He did not allow for, look at verse 19. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it to be here on Mount uh, Gerzazim where your ancestors worship? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when uh, it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming indeed. It is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There's a lot of stuff right there. There's a lot of information that God is speaking to you and I. And, and it's just so, what he's basically, listen, here it is, a Samaritan struggling with, why can't we worship God here? What did she want to do? She wanted to debate theology with Jesus. 
look at, I have learned about what's going on. What's the big deal? Why are you guys always complaining about us going here to worship God? What's the big deal about us using this, this reference material? What's, and, and Jesus says, listen, that has nothing, it doesn't matter because it's all about a person and not a place. Because he's about to reveal who he really is. But she's trying to get him off topic. People want you to get off topic. Because they don't want to talk about the real issues that have to do with them. God wants us to stay focused on what is being said. And what the word is saying here is that we are to be worshipers in spirit and in truth. So what does that mean? It's really simple. It means that we worship God in the inside, in spirit, that's inside us. And secondly, in truth, there's genuine, honest, with integrity worship. So here's what happens. When we stand and we worship, we all stand and worship. But we really don't do that. I watch you. I see a lot of us stand. I see no mouths moving. You just kind of well, that sounds really good. Oh, yeah, well, cool, man. I just feel God right now. And, and you're just kind of in the middle of it, but you're not worshiping. The difference is it wells up inside of you. And here's what I've discovered. When you are worshiping God, it doesn't matter what's happening here. It doesn't matter what's happening out there. All of a sudden, you are being honest about your moving into the very presence of God. And it, you know what? You just, you just go there. And you sing the song, but it no longer becomes a song. It becomes a tool that expresses what's on the inside, and it's released right all over the place, called living water. And so here's the neat part is if they're not sounding so good, it doesn't matter because you're worshiping God. They miss a note, you don't even know it. They miss a line, you don't even catch it. Because you're worshiping God in the inside. But if what they do stops you, I've had people tell me, I can't worship God because the music's too soft, too loud, too fast, too whatever. Well, then you're not worshiping God. You're now being dependent upon something. So Jesus is saying, that there's something that happens in us that takes place inside of us in spirit and in truth. Can you see a minute of that? A lot of stuff here. It's all right, you need this. I'm just sharing with you my heart right now. This is so critical. You know what she does? Give me the next slide. The woman says, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Now before I read that next line, remember, here's what's happening. The Samaritans believed basically there were two people, the prophet and the priest or the Messiah. And they believed there were two individuals. The prophet would come and would reveal all things. The Messiah would come and save. So here was her dilemma. Are you the prophet or are you the Messiah? Because he was saying stuff about her. It sounded like, man, you sound like a prophet right now because you know all this stuff about me. And only the prophet would know. And the prophet would be the one that would foretell the coming of the Messiah. And so what are you? And I love it because here 
This is Jesus. <laughs> so cool. For the first time, he directly reveals himself that he hasn't done up to this point in time. I mean, angels have proclaimed. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? Angels proclaiming who you are, all that kind of stuff. And that's all pretty amazing. But here he is out of his own mouth as once his ministry has started, he is for the first time directly, straightforward manner. Here is no question declaring who he is. And who does he say it to? This is what I love. A Samaritan woman. Oy vey. What, I mean, what is your problem? A woman first? Gee. What about a rabbi? I mean, gee whiz. I mean, from the temple at least. At least from Israel. Jerusalem. But you're in Samaria, and there's a woman. Isn't that amazing? For the very first time, she makes this declaration, and then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Let me make this clear. I'm not the prophet. I am the Messiah. I am the one who is coming who is called the Christ. I am the one who comes who will explain everything. I am the one to save you. I am the one to redeem you. I am the one who will change your life. Right here. Here I am. So what are you going to do about it? And her life changes. It is transformed. It is renewed. And then, if you read the rest of the story, she goes out and tells everyone about it. She does what we should be doing. She goes out to the village and starts talking to everyone about this amazing moment in her life. And before you know it, people are coming to know Jesus all over the place. Here's a challenging thought. Some of you are Samaritans. You know why? Because you're living with a word that's different than God's word, and you're living life that's disobedient, but you don't think you are. The problem with Samaritans was they were insisting that their life was really okay and that they were worshiping God like they were supposed to, but they really weren't. And then Jesus comes to confront and say, listen, you're not right. Stop being disobedient. Move back to a place of obedience and worship who you're supposed to worship. And that is the God of Israel, the only begotten Son, Jesus the Messiah.